From the studio of KPSU Portland and in association with the Department of History at Portland State University, this is Beyond Footnotes. Join us as we explore public, local, and world history through discussions with professors, authors, fellow students, and alumni, as well as local historians. Thank you for joining us. This is Beyond Footnotes. I'm Lily. And today we are interviewing Dr. Danny Kim. Dr. Kim is a visiting assistant professor at the Department of History who teaches Korean history. His work focuses on imperialism, feminism, and literature, and all forms of international exchange, especially in culturally liminal spaces. Hello, Dr. Kim. Thank you so much for joining us. And thanks for having me here. Thank you. Um, to start, could you introduce yourself, introduce yourself and tell us a bit about your role here at Portland State? Okay. Well, um, yeah, as you mentioned, uh, my name is Danny Kim. I recently received my PhD from the University of Wisconsin um, in Madison. And uh, at Wisconsin, I worked with uh, professors Louise Young mm -hmm. and uh, Charles Kim. They work on Japan and Korea, respectively. And um, about my role here, it's, uh, it's kind of interesting because uh, in many ways it is an unusual position. Mm -hmm. So uh, my position is actually largely funded through the Korean government through an organization called the Korea Foundation. And uh, their job is just to promote uh, awareness of Korea as a whole and also uh, spread interest in, in Korean culture and um, Korean history, Korean literature, and so on and so forth. The other part of my position is uh, um, supported by private donors and people from uh, the local community. So um, as such, uh, my job is uh, both partly academic and partly uh, in the role of development. Um, for the development portion, I'm responsible for kind of building the Korean Studies program here. And uh, what that entails is um, a lot of work kind of uh, raising awareness about Korean studies, kind of um, trying to bolster interest in Korean history, Korean literature, and Korean culture. So um, in that role, I, I give quite a few public talks um, and then also uh, private, private uh, speeches. I think since Arriving here, I've given an average of probably one and a half talks uh, per month. Wow! So it's it's been quite hectic, but um, yeah, I've I found it quite enjoyable. And then, of course, um, the other aspect is uh, teaching. Um, I've taught uh, one course during the fall, one during the winter, and will teach uh, two during the spring. And then also, um, the majority of this position, actually fifty four percent, I think on on paper, is uh, research. So um, I hope to continue my uh, publication schedule and uh, I'm working on trying to get out uh, maybe one or two articles this, this year. Um, I think my, my uh, reasonable goal is one, my stretch goal is two. And uh, in the meanwhile, also uh, revising my dissertation into a book manuscript for publication by uh, Academic Press. Cool. Um, could you also, and kind of did a bit of this, but could you also give a bit about your background um, in terms of your research areas and things like that? Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah so um, I think uh, my case is somewhat unusual in, in a lot of ways. So first of all, I was somewhat of a non-traditional student, and uh, um, on top of that, I, I went into academia hoping to study Japanese history, not necessarily Korean history. So I applied under uh, Professor Louis Young, and she's actually a expert on on modern Jap on modern Japan. 
Um, however, during my, my grad studies, I became more and more interested in Korea. I actually wrote my master's thesis on, um, uh, on you know, colonial period Korean history. And uh, the more I studied, the more I became interested in the subject. Um, so fortunately, my advisor was quite flexible. And we had a, uh, an amazing um, modern Korean his historian at Wisconsin, Charles Kim. So um, I had the flexibility to kind of uh, move fields from my initial interest. So um, as such, you know, I, I just kept getting more interested in, in modern Korean history. And um, in some ways, uh, it, it I, I don't know how much of my own personal background is, is uh, tied with this. But, you know, I, I am uh, Korean-American. And, uh, you know, my, my parents um, immigrated here, so I'm a second-generation immigrant. Uh, my, my father came to uh, go to grad school at, at Princeton University, where he studied um, aerospace engineering, and where uh, eventually he became a, um, uh, a professor also. So, um, I mean, I, I think maybe some of my own personal background, being, you know, of Korean heritage, may have... Uh, in some shape or form shaped uh, my academic interests, but definitely I, I wasn't the type that um, was especially nationalistic or had any deep and enduring uh, kind of visceral love for, for Korea per se, but rather it, it the interest kind of developed more ac uh, organically as I took uh, more and more courses on both modern Japan and modern Korea. Makes sense, yeah. Um. See, so could you talk a bit about your thesis, um, Intelligentsia Under an Empire, Proletarian Authors, Socialist Feminist, and the Fate of Korean Intellectuals in Japan, um, which is also, I believe, what you're revising into your book, which we got, we're like, we were lucky enough to read that chapter of. Yeah, so um, that dissertation is uh, kind of the, the product of my, my kind of uh, meandering academic interest, but... Um, um, overall, the dissertation is, is broken into two parts, and the first part really uh, concentrates on how um, the Korean academic system was shaped by the colonial experience. So uh, beginning in 1910, Japan began its colonization of Korea, and, and part of this was a, a major restructuring and kind of um, reworking of the existing educational system. Um, before uh, Japanese colonization, um, there were several different school types, but one of the, ma the major educational kind of networks was uh, built around, uh, you know, Confucian scholarship. Um, in fact, my, my own uh, paternal grandfather himself was uh, a Confucian scholar. Um, and uh, e even my dad, uh, surprisingly, um, started off learning the, the four books in the five classics, which are uh, classical Confucian texts. He, uh, um, he actually learned classical Chinese before he learned Korean mm. and uh, didn't know uh, numerals, Arabic numerals, until third or fourth grade, I, I believe. So it's um, quite surprising that he, he was able to stu study literally uh, rocket science at, at Princeton University. But nevertheless, um, it goes to show how, uh, you know, kind of um, the Confucian tradition was, you know, had, had some... Um, uh, had a long legacy within uh, the Korean Peninsula. And so uh, Japan, on, on implementing a, a quote-unquote modern educational system, uh, made some pretty radical changes. So the first half of my dissertation kind of uh, traces some of these changes. So uh, the first chapter kind of looks at the demotion of a lot 
of a lot of uh, Korea's existing educational institutions and um, how this created this pressure for um, aspiring students to travel abroad, um, particularly in the case of my dissertation, to Japan, especially Tokyo. So, um, you know, this is a, a quite interesting group in that um, they're traveling to the nation of their, their colonizer um, in search of higher education and, you know, have to be fluent in Japanese and uh, have to kind of uh, assimilate to, for example, the, the entrance exams and, and so on and so forth. So the second chapter kind of traces a lot of the overseas um, uh, networks, especially in, in Tokyo, uh, that some of these colonial Korean intellectuals uh, created. Um, in particular, I, I took a, I look at two groups um, that were based in Tokyo. And then the third chapter kind of traces a lot of these uh, students once they became graduates and uh, returned to Seoul. They, most of them returned to Seoul. So um, kind of looking at uh, how they were portrayed, um, what their Japanese education, higher education uh, enabled them to do, and uh, also some of the um, kind of uh, cultural portrayals of uh, returning intellectuals. So, um, you know, they, they were simultaneously seen as kind of this uh, uh, kind of uh, arrogant uh, new bourgeoisie in some instances, but many of them at the same time were unable to get jobs, so they were seen as kind of a an overeducated but underemployed um, populace with with nothing but their their pride, um, and and so on and so forth. So the third chapter kind of is um, a cultural history of these returning intellectuals. So the first the first three chapters form the first part of uh, the dissertation and kind of give a sense of uh, kind of contextualize this um, educational route that uh, drew Koreans to Tokyo and back to Seoul. And then uh, the second half looks at specific groups of uh, intellectuals that, that actually made this journey. While not 100% of the people in the second half uh, did kind of fit this journey uh, to a T, nevertheless, it, it was kind of a, an overall trend. So I look at uh, proletarian authors, many of them who wrote in Japanese, actually, and uh, who had networks with uh, Japanese um, socialist, and then also socialist feminist, uh, many of them similarly who had uh, connections with, uh, you know, women in Japan like uh, Yamakawa Kikue and some other quite well-known Japanese feminists. So um, the the latter chapter in particular kind of uh, looks at all, all the different uh, trajectories that um, uh, women could take and kind of challenges some of the binaries between colony and empire and uh, so on and so forth. So, um, yeah, that was that was the the overall outline of the dissertation. Um, I'm working on additional material for for the dissertation also, and uh, also revising quite a bit for um, to prepare it into a book manuscript. What is the uh, process like for revising a dissertation to a book? Well, it's uh, in in my case, it's been very ad hoc. Um, there's been a, a lot of uh, unexpected bumps on the way. Um, and uh, some of these, um, to some extent, I may or may not ha have had control over. Um, for example, you know, the, the field tends to move in certain ways, and every now and then um, certain topics just, just become really hot issues. 
And if that's the case, you, um, and, and you're writing on that issue, it, it actually can be oversaturated. So you, you have to kind of make adjustments in the way. So um, in that aspect, you know, one, one part of my dissertation, uh, fortunately or, or unfortunately, um, has has uh, already garnered a lot of interest, and and thus I'm I'm finding somewhat some trouble um, uh, writing something new on on that particular topic. So um, some of the revision process actually is uh, kind of feeling out uh, what the field is is where the field is moving and and trying to adjust some of your focus uh, accordingly. And then um, the other part of the revision process is is actually. Um, uh, getting other faculty to to read your work. So uh, fortunately, the history department here at PSU is is uh, incredibly cordial, mm-hmm. and uh, they have a very uh, regular faculty writing group. And uh, so I've I've gotten feedback on my work from like American environmental historians and Russian historians and and uh, you know in, uh, pre-modern Chinese historians. So um, it it really helps. Uh, um, see your own work in a new light as uh, you get kind of these outside readers to to look into your work and it, you know they they bring up new points that are uh, that you know being so myopic within your own field you might often overlook so yeah. um, I've, I've gotten some of my best feedback has been from someone who uh, specializes in Africa actually yeah that makes sense because I know like sometimes when I have people read you know, my papers are something they may know nothing about it, but they still have these really insightful, you know, comments. Yeah, and it's uh, it's uh, especially helpful because, um, you know, a- as a grad student and receiving uh, advice from other grad students, mm-hmm. uh, number one, it's usually people uh, in a field that's very similar to yours, and secondly, it's all people that are in similar stages of their uh, academic careers. Mm-hmm. It, in other words, they don't have academic careers, really. <laughs> so, uh, so, uh, but uh, in the case of a faculty writing group like this, I mean, I'm I'm getting uh, people from uh, from different stages of their their uh, careers, so they can give uh, advice on on things that um, I, I really didn't know much about. Things like um, how to strategize with uh, potential publishers. Mm-hmm or how much of your dissertation you want to put out as articles before it's too much, and then people know too much about your dissertation so it can't turn into a book. And uh, there's quite a a lot going on behind the scenes. And then even kind of the nitty-gritty of, like, the financials of of this whole process and and, uh, these kind of details, I've I've gotten quite a a bit of feedback uh, from other faculty. That would be incredibly helpful, like all those, like, inner, kind of inner... Uh, behind the scenes, you know, yeah. tips. Yeah. yeah, yep. Um. So what, what, so on the dissertation, what was the process like for working on a PhD thesis or being a PhD student? <laughs> oh, okay. So um, this is going to depend quite a lot depending on the institution. So, um, for example, um, the East Asianists at, at Harvard University when they want to do their dissertation, they, they actually have to do a pseudo-defense of their mm-hmm. proposal before embarking on the research itself, which, um, you know, I've, I've had several good colleagues go through this process, and it sounds quite intense. The um, reasoning behind that being that they want you to have a, a very firm grasp of where your research is heading before you, you hit the archives. Um, in in my case, um, we were a bit more flexible throughout the whole process. So, um, 
my my dissertation actually changed quite a bit from uh, the grant proposal I wrote to do the research, actually. So um, originally I was looking um, entirely just at um, kind of educational institutions and kind of different ideologies of education during colonial Korea. And um, but it um, as I kind of hit the archives, I, I just uh, found more and more um, sources and, and uh, different uh, interconnections between Korea and Japan that I wanted to kind of um, explore further. So um, for me, uh, it, my uh, dissertation quite, kind of took a, a winding path. But um, fortunately, I, I had the um, opportunity to do one year of research in. Um, Japan under a Japan Foundation grant, um, and I was at uh, Waseda University uh, for a year. And in, in that process, um, in in this u- university in Tokyo, I was able to um, really delve into some of the Japanese language archives on on uh, the colonization of Korea. Um, read a lot of the works by um, you know Japanese educational scholars and and uh, other. Even um, some of the sources were, were quite interesting. When I was uh, looking up educational institutions, um, I also looked at uh, kind of the entrance, entrance exams for, for colleges, which uh, colonial Koreans would have had to take. And you know, it's, it's, uh, some of these uh, publications are, are basically like the Kaplan or the Princeton Review, except it's in uh, 1920s Japan. They, they even had to study English because there was an English section. and. Um, on, on some of the archives, I could s- still see the scribblings of some poor, you know, 18-year-old from, you know, 1921 or something trying to remember how to, uh, various English words and their, their uh, Japanese equivalents. So um, it, it was nice uh, delving into the archives like that. Mm-hmm. Um, the other great thing was um, uh, networking. Um, Waseda University is... is um, widely considered to be the top private institution in in Japan. And uh, um, my advisor there was a dean of the humanities. So, um, you know, I I got to meet several uh, top scholars. And then uh, the final great thing about that experience was um, I I was actually in a a Japanese language uh, graduate seminar, which uh, was incredibly challenging at first. But um, you you get used to this, and, you know, there's definitely kind of a, a... academic language that uh, you, you have to quickly acclimate to. But, um, you know, through, through experience and, and trial and error, I was um, eventually able to, to kind of uh, uh, participate, maybe not incredibly smoothly, but, but participate nevertheless. And uh, it was a similar situation. I, I received a, a Fulbright for one year to study in Seoul also, at, at Seoul National University, and their experience was, was much the same. Um, uh, the Fulbright uh, community, the academic community there was incredibly strong, and um, you know most of my colleagues uh, that I was in Seoul with uh, have gone on to, to find uh, great postdocs or other positions, so uh, similarly the networking was good. And um, the the educational opportunities and also the archival material in Seoul were excellent, also. So, um, yeah, that that was another big part of the dissertation, which was the the two uh, research years in my case, um, and uh, it it was incredibly reward, uh, rewarding academically, but it it was just 
a ton of fun on a personal level. Um, when, when I was in Tokyo, one of my, my best friends got a Fulbright and uh, was in Tokyo with me, and we would hit the archives together um, until six, and then we would go out and, uh, you know, have beer and sushi and, you know, hit the town uh, in the evening, and, uh, yeah, we, we had a great time. So um, it was uh, it was a good, great experience overall. Um, so uh, the way it worked for me was... Um, so I applied for these various grants, um, spent my one year in research, and during that year in research, I applied for my second round of grants. Um, I was lucky enough to, to get something um, the first time around both times. And then uh, I actually did not uh, do much writing while I was overseas and did the majority of my writing uh, once I got back, uh, which is something I, if I had to do again, I, I would definitely have written while I was collecting archival materials, mm-hmm. but um, uh, and and uh, maybe have finished a little bit earlier, but um, nevertheless, it w- it was you know these two years of archival research, and then um, about four years of three and a half years of of writing after that, but um, yeah, and then after the writing, you have to do the um, dissertation defense, and for me that was in. Uh, August of 2017. Recent, and, wow. Yeah, very, very recent. And then my uh, diplomas dated August 27th, and then I started two weeks later at PSU. Oh my gosh. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that would be like an intense transition. Yeah, and I, I had to drive from Wisconsin to, to Oregon also. Oh, wow. Yeah, so. Um, it, trip. Yeah, yeah, it was, it was kind of hectic, uh, and it, it was definitely, um, you know, quite, quite challenging towards the end because. Um, mm. I, I had this position, so I, I, I absolutely knew I, I had to to pass this defense. But at the same time, there's you're you're like um, you know taking care of a lease and mm-hmm. you know thinking about how to get your car there and just it's it's uh, it was uh, very hectic. But um, in the end, I'm I'm quite happy with this position. So, on the PhD note, is there any advice you would give to undergraduates or graduate students, like master students uh, seeking a PhD, like whether it's applying or just being prepared for um, a PhD? Yeah, well, um, I, I can speak most clearly to, to my own, you yeah. know, subfield since that's what I, I I know the best. But in my case, I mean, I mean, it really, really came down to language. Um, um, as I mentioned earlier, I, I was somewhat of a non-traditional student in that. Um, you know, I, I didn't start out in history. I started out in biomedical engineering. Oh yeah, that's different. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, and then um, you know, I, I had some bumps along the road. So, um, you know, I, I didn't have an impeccable GPA or whatever. But um, you know, fortunately, once I switched to history, I I, I did quite well. And uh, um, but I, I think the the thing that really set me apart from a lot of the other applicants was uh, you know my my language ability. Uh, for my writing sample, I, I actually had a very extensive use of primary language documents in, uh, you know, pseudo pre-modern Japanese, that, uh, and um, which is which is quite difficult. And um, and uh, yeah, I, I had very extensive use of this, and then I could I could also uh, you know note that I I had some familiarity with uh, the Korean language. It wasn't much, but just just you know a, a very rudimentary level uh, knowledge of Korean. Um, at the time, obviously, I'm fluent now. But um, so I, I think that that really helps uh, set you apart. 
um, especially with uh, difficult languages like um, you know Japanese or Korean. Um, I, I think that definitely helps. So uh, my recommendation would be uh, um, if you're working in a primary language that's not English, um, try to use incorporate as many primary sources as possible into your your writing sample. And uh, in in the majority of cases, I, I think the natural instinct is to feel not ready. I mean, technically, I I if Given my Japanese language ability when I was doing Japanese language research, objectively, I was not ready. I, I think almost a- every Japanese language teacher would have yelled at me for <laughs> attempting to, to do what I was attempting to do. But at some point, you, you just have to try. Mm-hmm. Um, if, if you're going to wait until you're, you're ready, then, then you're, it'll never happen. So, um, I mean, I, I really struggled with these uh, primary language sources. I mean, it's... Um, I, I had to look up like every other Chinese character, and with uh, Chinese characters, it's it's not like you just type in something in, in a dictionary. I mean, if you have a Chinese character, h- how do you put it into a dictionary? Right. You you have to like look up each like stroke and each segment, um, what are called radicals. So um, it's incredibly time consuming, but uh, I I found it to be a a very um, educational experience, and and uh, also I I'm. Uh, I remember one of the earliest things that my advisor mentioned um, at Wisconsin was, was, you know, that that, um, she felt like uh, my language abilities made me a a much stronger candidate. So um, that that would be my my major advice, would be language, language, language. Um, And uh, just, yeah, try to incorporate. I I think for my writing sample, uh, you know, the majority was actually the r- majority of my cit- citations were actually um, uh, primary language, so uh, primary sources in, in the Japanese language. So um, I, I definitely think that helped. Um, and uh, obviously, um, a, a good GPA and, and, and good GRE scores uh, don't uh, don't hurt. Um, you know, in, in my case, I, I uh, somehow. I uh, managed to do quite well on on the GREs, so um, that that may have helped. Um, I, I took the GREs twice because I, I was unhappy with my math score the first time. Oh, my math! Uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, I mean I've heard all sorts of different answers on on how much the the math GRE counts for a historian or aspiring historian. Everywhere from we don't even look at it to we use it as a general indicator of overall intelligence. Yeah, so because I, I got someone told me the latter of those two, I, I was like, OK, I'll, I'll try to uh, raise the score. And, you know, I, I managed to, to get, uh, I believe, top top 10 percentile. So oh, in the wow. end, it, it worked. It worked out OK. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I think obviously if you, if you have time to, to invest in this process. I, I would spend the vast majority of it for, for the verbal section. Yeah. Um, in, in my case, the, my, my first ver- verbal score was, was in, in the top one percentile, so I, I didn't have to really uh, work on it, but mm-hmm. um, I, I redid the, the math a bit. So, um, But as, as far as how much that, that helped in the application process, it, it never came up. My advisor never mentioned my GRE score, and, and uh, I, I, I don't know how much of it uh, impact it has, but um, I think uh, people were explicit about um, having the necessity of uh, language training um, for incoming graduate students, and um, 
an, another kind of uh, um, piece of evidence that kind of uh, foregrounds the importance of, of uh, language ability was was the fact that you know I, I saw unfortunately I, I saw you know colleagues of mine who who had to quit or or were kind of encouraged to leave you know during the the grad school process because they they just couldn't master the language or, or had struggles with um, primary source documents so um, yeah it just it just that just goes to emphasize the importance of uh, a strong language foundation before you go in. Uh, strongly, strongly encourage uh, students to do that, mm-hmm. and um, you know, I, I, I think a, a gap year is also a great idea. Mm-hmm. In my case, I, I graduated um, after the fall uh, term, mm-hmm. so I, I had a, a winter and spring term open. So what I actually did was um, I, I got a position in in China, uh, Yunnan province, uh, in a city called Kunming. Um, and uh, I, I found a gig where I, I teach for half a day, and uh, they pay for my um, housing, my food, and uh, tuition for uh, Chinese language classes at oh, wow. the local college. So I, I taught in the mornings, and then uh, studied and studied Chinese in um, in the evenings. And you know, between roughly half of a year with it being in China, mm-hmm. um, learning Chinese, it, it actually great things for um, my Chinese language abilities. Uh, strongly, strongly encourage uh, students to do that. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I, I, I think a, a gap year is also a great idea. Mm-hmm. In my case, I, I graduated um, after the fall uh, term. Mm-hmm. So I, I had a, a winter and spring term open. So right. what I actually did was um, I, I got a position in, in China, uh, Yunnan province, uh, in a city called Kunming. Um, and uh, I, I found a gig where I, I teach for half a day, and uh, they pay for my um, housing, my food, and uh, tuition for uh, Chinese language classes at oh, wow. the local college. So I, I taught in the mornings, and then uh, studied and studied Chinese, and um, in the evenings, and you know, between roughly half of a year with it being in China, mm-hmm. um, learning Chinese, it, it actually great things for um, my Chinese language abilities. So you'd like to add, since I think we've gotten all the questions. Um, at this point, I don't believe so. So you'd like to add, since I think we've gotten all the questions. Um, at this point, I don't believe so. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you.